With your Bibles opened at Mark uh, chapter 2, let's just once again uh, bow our heads in the presence of the King and ask for his help as we come to uh, leave a few thoughts from uh, various portions of this reading. And uh, really, I've just picked three words from this. We're reading it uh, in the week past uh, as a family, uh, Mark chapter 2, and uh, these three words jumped out at me as I was reading through them with the family, and we trusted even the thoughts that we'll have from them that might be a blessing to you. And normally it's not the style of uh, sermon that I might prepare. It's not exegetical, uh, dealing with the context and all of those various details. I'd love to sit and do that, uh, but those three words have really been uh, my focus and my attention over the past couple of days. And we trust that as we deal with them under the heading of the Christian life, and that you'll know what it is to question your own life and to ask yourself how it is that you are walking with God, if you are walking at all, that is. And if you're not walking, if you're not following these three various principles that we'll be looking at today, if they're not part of your life, the question must be asked, why not? And today that can be changed. There can be a transformation taking place in your heart and in your life today. And you can join with the band of Christians that are here and follow God with that life of faith and forgiveness which he offers to each and every one of us here even in the house of God. Let's just pray and ask for his help as we come and to preach upon his word. Our Heavenly Father, again we approach thy throne and we do so uh, trembling at the realization that we have nothing in ourselves to bring. We've just been singing about days where we could remember walking with God. We can remember those sweet hours of prayer in thy presence. And yet, Lord, that That joy that we once experienced has been replaced for many of us by the world, the flesh, and even the devil perhaps has come into the hearts and lives of some. And we pray for those of us that have stumbled, for those of us that have grown cold at heart or lukewarm in our profession of faith over the past number of months, years, or maybe even even just days. We ask that you'd warm us up today. You take these truths that are mentioned even in Mark chapter 2, that you'd write them upon our hearts, you'd help us to live as a Christian should live. We realize that these are just but a few points, and there are many, many things that we must learn to live by. So help us to love thy word. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to hear it as it is preached and read today, but Lord, help us to heed it. Help us to apply it to our lives moment by moment. Lord, come and again cleanse us afresh. Give this preacher clean hands. Give this preacher a pure heart. Lord, wash me and use me for thy glory. And may each one here today be able to rejoice in words that God has even written upon their own souls. And may they be changed and transformed from the youngest right up to the oldest. May thy word be applied to our souls. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A number of years ago, I started doing a series of uh, studies through the book of Mark, and just a few months back, I finished that study, but as we said, we're reading through this as a family, and just refreshing my memory of Mark chapter 2, these three points jumped out at me as I was reading them, and perhaps you've had that experience before, I'm sure you have, if you're a believer, just reading God's Word, a passage that you've read time and time again, but as you read the Scriptures consecutively, all together, not sort of mishapped in, in maybe reading a little small portion at a time, or, or just taking one chapter, but maybe reading through an entire book all together, we see things differently, and we begin to see a bigger picture being painted by the authors of the Scriptures, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit Himself. But reading through this chapter together, uh, the three words that caught my attention was found first and foremost in verse number five. There's two of them there. And the boys and girls can have a quick look maybe at mommy and daddy's Bible and see what those words are. The first one is faith. The second one is 
forgiven. And later on in your Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see in the verse number 14, something else that Jesus Christ says. And again, hopefully the boys and girls can see that. It says, follow, follow me. It says that there is faith, there is forgiveness, and there is to be following. Now, the book of Mark is a very interesting gospel. It's one of the shortest, and that's one of the reasons I picked it. I had to preach through it whenever I was in placement in one of our churches. I thought, I'll have a year here. I'll be able to preach through all 16 chapters, and that took me about three years to do. So while it's short, there are many things in it that we can deal with. There are many lessons that we have in these short 16 chapters, but one of the things that you find as you read through the book of Mark and as you study it in your own personal time is the urgency that Mark has as he writes these words. Time and time again, there's this mention of things taking place immediately or straightway. He doesn't hang about. Jesus Christ isn't depicted as this sort of easygoing, laid-back type of character that just sort of lazes about his society and teaches when he gets the opportunity. No, he's always active, always pressing forward, always having a desire to do and to do more. We as Christians should follow that same example. Whenever we are asked to do something as believers, or again, even to pick on the boys and girls this morning, whenever mommy and daddy ask you to do something, mommy and daddy normally want it to be done right away. There is this immediacy whenever we are asked to do things. And as Christians, we need to have that very same attribute or characteristic added to our own, uh, own aspect of our lives. Everything that we do as a Christian, we should do it with an urgency, realizing that we're only here for a short time. What does James tell us? Our life is only but a vapor. It appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away, disappears, forgotten. The last time you boiled the kettle and you watched the steam rise, you didn't really think too much about it. This morning when you got your cup of tea or a cup of coffee and you watched the steam rising from that mug, it didn't really give you a second thought. Sure it didn't. Even if you noticed it at all, that is. And our lives are just like that. Yes, God knows us. God knows who you are and God remembers his people. But give it 10, 20, 30 years a hundred years if you want to be generous to yourself and we'll all be forgotten. Our life is as a vapor. And so there must be an urgency as we live this life that God has blessed us with. God has given us duties and responsibilities that need to be adhered to and need to be followed out as we live our lives in this world. And God wants us to be active in our Christian living. Not passively sitting back, allowing everybody else to do the work of God. I've been encouraged just standing here for the past 35 minutes or so, watching people coming in to this church, seeing the numbers that are gathered here. But it's not enough simply to be added to the number of the congregation in Clocker Valley. It's not enough simply to add your name on the roll as a member of this church. You need to be active as a Christian. You need to be active in your society. You need to have an urgency and to have, as, a, as it were, a bit of breath in you as you go about your business, desiring with intention to do what you do for God. When the young ones go to school, if you're a Christian, boys and girls, you should go to school with a desire to listen to the teacher, to obey the teacher and the instructions, to be a, a well-behaved in class, not just simply so that you can get a star or whatever it is you might get at the end of the week from the teacher, but that they might look at you and see something different about you. That you've been changed because God lives in you. For parents, as we go into the workplace or as you live amongst your, your family members and friends, we need to live a different life with an urgency, with an activity in our minds thinking that everything I am doing here is being watched. The world outside, they're watching you. They're watching me. 
They'll see you whenever you clock off early, when you're not meant to. They'll see you whenever you're slacking, whenever you should be working. They'll see you whenever you're indifferent and maybe you say things about the boss or about other colleagues in the place of work that shouldn't be said. And while you might say them passing flippantly and not think anything about it, your colleagues don't forget it. We as Christians need to live with realization that there are people that we work with, that we stay with for 40 hours a week perhaps, that are on their way to hell. And how you live your life as a Christian is of vital importance to them, even if it is not to you. You must walk with God. We all must walk with Him, day by day, realizing that we have been called to live a life of faith in the service of the King. If you have not experienced testing and trying times already as a Christian, the reality is that very soon they will come. The Christian life that we live is not a life of ease. It's not about putting your feet up and sort of just going along for the ride, hoping that one day you'll get into heaven. No, you'll, you'll be faced with troubles. No matter how you go on in this world, there will be financial troubles, family problems that might arise, and they'll be there. And I wonder this morning, as a Christian, are you ready for those things? As an unbeliever, you might think it'd be, it might be a bit forward of me to say it, but as an unbeliever, you're not ready for those things. You might think you're ready. You might think financially speaking, you are set up in life. You might think that your little family circle that you have around you is all well and good, that happiness is all around you in your little bubble that you've created for yourself. But if you're not a Christian, you're not prepared for the worst that could come. But the reality is as well, there are Christians here perhaps this morning that are not prepared either. You can think about historical events and you can travel up and down our own nation and see things and that historically speaking were used as great uh, points of defense in our, on our, in our own island. Just over the, uh, the summer, we spent a bit of time over in Donegal and uh, traveled up and down the west coast there and looked at some of the forts and we walked around with the kids, showed them the cannons that were once used even not all that long ago back in World War I and II and they used to be manned and now they're all rusty. It doesn't take long for societies and, and we follow the same picture as individual Christians to become a little bit slack. World War I and World War II were a long time ago, so we don't quite need the defense money that once was in place in, in years gone by to, to put soldiers there and to have those forts fortified and strengthened and give 20, 30 years and those things begin to, to dwindle away, to become memorials, not used in the warfare. And maybe you have things in your life, maybe the catechism, maybe your scriptural understanding, maybe theology that you once would have studied. It's a little bit like those old forts on the coast falling apart. Once upon a time in your Christian experience, even as we were singing a moment ago, you once enjoyed sweet things with Jesus Christ, but they're only memories now. Those old fortifications are falling apart into the sea as you live in the world. In 1941, on the 7th of December, some of you will probably be aware, and maybe if you know a little bit about your history, you'll be able to reflect upon what took place in peaceful Pearl Harbor. There's 353 Japanese aircraft flew into Pearl Harbor on that Sunday morning, and they weren't there for sightseeing activities. They were there to destroy the American Pacific Fleet, preempting the fact that America would eventually join World War II. They thought they would go forward and destroy what could have been a problem for them. And so they killed just shy of 2,500 American citizens that morning, bombing and destroying in the few hours that they were there. Of the, it said, historically speaking anyway, this may not be true, but apparently there were 402 American aircraft in Hawaii that day. 
188 of them were destroyed and 159 of them damaged. 155 of them were damaged on the ground. Almost none were ready to take off to defend the base, it said. Only eight Army Air Force pilots managed to get airborne during the attack. Eight out of 402. I'm not sure how many people are here, but if those odds were the same, there would be very few Christians ready for the attack of the enemy. And perhaps it is because your Christian walk is not what it should be. In this passage, we aren't talking about the fight of faith as 1 Timothy 6 verse 12 describes it, but nonetheless, it is still a fight. A fight that we must use faith in, we must know what it is to be forgiven in, and we must follow Jesus Christ in. And if you were to take what we want to look at in the moments that remain as really one heading, we could say that the Christian life is a life of faith in, forgiveness by, and following after Jesus Christ. You need to have faith in Christ. You need to be forgiven by Christ. And every single day of your life thereafter, you need to follow Christ. Is that what you're doing? 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. You may have professed it, but are you living it? In Hebrews chapter 11 and the verse 1, as we think about this idea of the Christian life being a life of faith, it simply says that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And while that might seem to be strange language, what it simply is saying is that faith is the Christian grasping, laying hold of, taking it as real and true that Jesus Christ has died for us. The hope that we have in him, the hope that we have thereafter and after this life that we'll be brought to heaven is something that by faith we take as being true. You might speak to people in the workplace, like I was last week, and they'll they'll talk to you about the Bible. They've read the Bible. They know the Bible. They know it better perhaps than some Christians, and maybe even myself as well, probably myself. And they talk about it, and they, they don't get this idea of faith. But for the Christian, faith isn't just some sort of figment of our imagination. It's not just some idea that we talk about or some concept that we speak about and preach about. It's something that takes hold of truths that God has revealed to us in the Scriptures, and we know them to be true. We live our lives in light of these truths. We die for these truths. We'll give up anything for these truths because we know them to be true. We know them to be fact. And that might seem to be quite heavy-handed language to use. It might seem to be quite strong language to use. How can you come to this text of Scripture that's thousands of years old, written by various individuals over again thousands of years, and believe it to be true? We do it by faith. We take hold of it by faith. And this is not a faith that we can conjure up in and of ourselves. It's not something you can teach in the Sunday school. It's not something you can apply in the youth fellowship. It's not something you can force on your children. The faith that the Bible speaks about is something that is gifted by God. God gives it to us. Whenever we did not deserve it, whenever we did nothing to earn it, Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10 tells us, For by grace are ye saved through faith. But what does it say about that faith? And that, that faith, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 
You see, Mark's gospel is all about activity. The Christian life is about urgency. It's about doing for God as we have the time to do it and while we have the time to do it. But it has to all be founded and grounded upon a life of faith, first and foremost. The writer to the Ephesians specifies that this faith is gifted, but he does not ignore the work that we must also do for God. We have been granted this faith, given this faith, but we've also been created to be workmen in this faith. We are to do good works because God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So the Christian life is to be a life of faith, but that does not negate a life of activity as Mark's gospel identifies and makes clear. And it is gifted. Augustus' top lady in his hymn writes these words in uh, the verses 2 and 3. I can't remember actually what the original hymn is now, uh, but you'll maybe recognize it anyway. He simply says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. This is what the faith of the Christian is. It's in him. It's gifted by God to us, but it's also grounded in Christ, in him alone. He goes on, verse number three, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, just like a bird, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The faith of the Christian is gifted by God, but it is to be a faith that is firmly grounded in Jesus Christ. People talk about individuals, oh, that man's a man of faith. That individual is a believer. They talk about various faiths in the world, whether it's Muslim faith or Christian faith or Roman Catholicism and everything else that go with it, all these other isms that are out there, and all these people come under the banner of people of faith. But how many of those individuals that come under the banner of peoples of faith have an empty faith? And I'm not just talking about the Hindu and the Muslim in foreign-off countries or the Roman Catholic down the street that we might disagree with and, and preach against when it comes to their doctrines and their theologies. I'm talking to individuals in our churches here today, free Presbyterians who looked apart. And the faith which you possess, at least profess to possess, it's not grounded and founded upon Jesus Christ and Him alone perhaps. Maybe in your own experience you have, you've written a date in the back of your or the front of your Bible. Maybe mom and dad have it written there. And I'm not wanting anybody, just before I say anything else, I'm not wanting anybody to go out of here questioning faith that they have in Jesus Christ in the sense that you're going to go home doubting whether or not you're saved. But we need to be sure that we're saved at the same time. And if your faith upon which you rest your salvation depends upon a prayer that you prayed however many years ago and depends upon your repentance and depends upon your church attendance and depends upon your confession of faith and depends upon anything that you have done and your faith is empty because you have added you to what only should be described as being Christ. Your prayer, your repentance, your life, your good living, your charitable activities, the fruitfulness that you might have attained in this world, your church attendance, all these things that are good in the rightful place do not take the place of Christ when it comes to your faith. 
the Christian, as we think about saving faith, it must simply be in what Jesus Christ has done. His work. His finished work. His person. What he has accomplished in my place and in my stead. Not what I have done. The Christian's life must be a life of faith. Gifted by God and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no one else that you can depend upon. Nothing else that you can depend upon. So the question must be asked before we go on any further. What is your faith grounded in? Who is your only hope? And if you begin your answer by saying, well, I prayed a prayer, or I did this, or I do that, you've missed the point of the gospel. Are you saved? Yes, he died for me. Are you saved? Yes, he lived a righteous life for me. Are you going to heaven? Yes, because he is going to bring me there. Are you you worthy of it? No. We're all worthy of damnation. But that leads us to our second point, and I'm going to be very brief with these last two ones. Because the Christian life is to be a life not just of faith in what Jesus Christ is and who he is, a faith that God has gifted unto us, but it is to be a faith in his forgiveness. Verse 5, we really didn't deal with any of the context there for the first point. Our time's gone, so we'll have to just skip that a little bit. Um, But the the words that Jesus Christ says in the verse 5 to the individuals that are there, he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven. And the whole question comes up, how can he forgive these sins? Had to touch on it in passing. These individuals, I don't believe they, they came primarily with the objective to see their friend walk. If you read it and, and almost exclude the idea of him being sick of the palsy and unable to walk and as a cripple, if you remove that from the opening couple of verses and you just read it as it, it stands there, what does Jesus Christ mention first and foremost? It's his sins. These individuals had the faith to believe that their sins could be forgiven. And so our faith is in one that can do something for us. And so as we look to the Christ of the gospel of Mark, to the Christ that lived thousands of years ago on our behalf, we look to one that is able to do something for his people. He is able to forgive us. He has the power to do that. What the Pharisees and the scribes and all the other religious individuals were there saying, it it was true. Who can forgive sins, verse 7, but God only? We see this is where our faith differs from the belief of many in this world. You see, Jesus Christ isn't just another man like Muhammad was. He isn't just another prophet like Abraham and all the other prophets that came before him. He isn't just like John the Baptist, a man that had great power in in his preaching and in his ministry that baptized multitudes. He isn't just a great man that was able to teach us lessons whereby we might be able to live a better life in this world. He is the God-man. God manifests in the flesh. And if your faith does not take hold of that, then you have no forgiveness. I spoke to a Presbyterian man at work throughout the week there. Brought up in the church, read the Bible. From what I gather, used to play the organ and the piano for the congregation. Helped out in various parts of the, the youth groups and everything else to go with it. Now a, a professed agnostic. Does not know if we can know that there is a God. And this whole idea of who Jesus Christ was came up in the conversation. And you might think it to be blasphemous, but I believe it to be true. If Jesus is not God's son, he means absolutely nothing to me. If Jesus was not God manifest in the flesh, then I would not be wasting my time here. 
If he was just a good man like half of the world believes he was, then he's a meaningless blip in history. But the fact that changes it all is the fact that, as Peter professes, thou art the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting for, the one that can save his people from their sins, the Christ, the Son of the living God. If he's not that, he cannot forgive you. If he's not that, he cannot save you. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 3, verse 15 tells us, he came into this world to fulfill all righteousness for us. This he did for his people to forgive you. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says that from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day if he wasn't killed, if he didn't suffer, if he didn't rise over death itself after three days in the tomb, if he wasn't accepted in his ascension into the courts of heaven, if he is not alive forevermore, then he means nothing to me. But he means everything. He is our all in all. He is the one that can forgive us because he is all that and more. He is God in human flesh. He came to forgive our debts. And as Christians, if we just flip this on our reflection, we've been looking really at the eye of faith toward Christ and his ability to forgive us because of who he is, But the Christian walk isn't always just simply about looking to Jesus Christ. It's about reflecting him. We are to be representatives of Christ in this world. Little Christ, you might say. Christian lookalikes. Christ in miniature. The word of God living in us and through us by faith in the life of Christ. That's what we're meant to be. And so if you take that one point, again, it's not in the context here, but that idea of forgiveness. Perhaps there are individuals here this morning and, and you need to know what it is to show that forgiveness to others. You need to begin reflecting what Christ has done for you and how you treat others. And forgiveness is just one small part of that, just to mention it in passing. Read the New Testament and the epistles especially and you'll find a multitude of ways in which your life must be changed and transformed. But begin with forgiveness because that's where your Christian life begins. The Christian life then does not end there. You might have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a child in your youth. You might have known what it is to enjoy the forgiveness which God grants to us in the scriptures and by the life and death of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection. But that might be a long time ago. The question for you and for me today is, is my Christian life a life of following today? To follow Jesus Christ is to walk away from certain things and to walk with him in certain things. And just as we conclude this morning, let me read you a portion that really ties in with the text here. And we have in verse number 14, Levi being called to follow Jesus. And what does he do? Verse 14, he arose and followed him. No questions asked, no ifs and buts, no, he went. In Matthew 4, verse 18 to 22, we have a similar account. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father, and followed him. 
your life should be a life of following. For some of us, in fact, for all of us, there will be certain aspects of that that will include forsaking. Forsaking the old life, walking away from those old things that you've done, even those things that were, were good and duties that were, were right. It was not wrong for them to be fishermen by any stretch of the imagination. But God called them to do something else. Perhaps God is calling you to do something else. But you've been tempted by the world. You've looked on at what the world has to offer. You looked on at the financial stability that you could gain with your career path as you choose it. But in the back of your mind, in the heart of hearts, you know that God's asking you to do something more. To give your life to Him. To follow Him. Perhaps there's an individual here in the house of God today and God would make you a fisher of men. You cannot do that unless you first and foremost forsake the old life and run with Him in the new. We must walk with God. Are you walking with Him today? Our time is gone. But I trust that as the sermon comes to an end, that you'll know what it is to really deal with those three questions in your heart and in your soul. And for those of you that are not walking and following with Jesus Christ, for those of you that do not know what it is to be forgiven, for those that have no faith in the Son of God, again, the question comes to you, why not? If you're not living the Christian life, what life are you living? The Bible will tell you that you're not living at all. Come to Him. He calls you unto himself today. Plead with him for your soul. Receive salvation. Walk in newness of life with Christ. Become a follower of the King and see great things done for him, even in this world. Just as we conclude our entire meeting, we're going to have the final hymn, hymn number 418. I believe this is perhaps a new thing uh, for yourselves as a congregation. It's going to be the offering hymn at this stage, so we'll remain seated uh, while the offering is gathered together for the first part of that hymn, 418. And let's just sing uh, with hearts prayerfully. I didn't pick this hymn, but it ties well in with what we've been saying. Pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Let's sing with rejoicing in our hearts prayerfully that God would plant our feet on higher ground. Let's remain seated for the first part.
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the Word of God that we've been able to look at today and for these truths that apply to every, every single Christian that's here. We ask that you'd help us to walk with that eye of faith ever heavenward, believing and the receiving and the many blessings which we have in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, realizing them to be true. Help us to know that forgiveness and to have that joy and that peace which passes the understanding of the world because all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sorrow has all been taken away and forgiven and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, as well, that we can follow on with Jesus, but help us to do so. Forgive us for being like thy disciples and betraying thee and running away from thee. Forgive us for falling afar off. Bring us close, right up to thy side. May we walk hand in hand with the King, with that eye of faith, with forgiveness, with cleansing in our souls, and with a desire to live as Christians in this world, with urgency, with a desire to work for thee, for the glory of thy name, and for the extension of thy kingdom. Be with each one that's here today. Bring us to our homes in safety. And Lord, save, restore, and encourage and edify thy people. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.